Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Welcome to America's Best Baseball Podcast. We take you behind the scenes in and around Major League Baseball with former big league manager Kevin Kennedy and veteran baseball broadcaster Rich Herrera. This is the only weekly podcast hosted by someone like Kennedy who played, coached, and managed in pro ball. So we can take you into the manager's office for a real insider's view of baseball alongside a veteran baseball broadcaster like Herrera who has covered the game from coast to coast. So let's talk some baseball with your hosts. Here they are. The skipper, Kevin Kennedy, and Rich Herrera. Welcome, everybody, to America's Best Baseball Podcast. I'm RBI Rich, Rich Herrera. That is the skipper, Kevin Kennedy. Skip, happy Bobby Bonilla week to you. Bobby Bonilla week? Is that the happy 4th of July? Is that when he got traded? Tell me, tell me why it's Bobby Bonilla week. It's Bobby Bonilla week. Every time at this, every, every week, this time of year, Bobby Bonilla gets a check for $1 million plus Part of that deferred settlement he had with the Mets when they cut him, they didn't wow. want to pay him his five million dollars. So he said, starting in 2011 for 25 years, he will get a million dollars a year. And it's always around July the fourth. Exactly. So it's That's Bobby Bonilla week. Yeah. Wow. How about that? How wow. about that deal? You know, we're talking about the NBA and all this money they're throwing around, and you know, LeBron coming to Los Angeles to play for the Lakers, and right. you know, all this money thrown around. How about Bobby Bonilla? He was owed, I think, it was five six million dollars. And the Mets said, let's defer the money. And we've heard that all the time, defer the money. So they deferred the money to 2011 and starting in 2011 every year for 25 years because of the interest in deferring the money. He gets like, I think it's like $1.1 million. Well, for a player, that's a smart deal. And you know who his was, was representative was? Very who's, good friend of mine. Who's that? Dennis Gilbert. Oh, you know what? Dennis Gilbert's the one I saw who tweeted out and I'm friends with him on Facebook. Dennis, Dennis Gilbert represented Bobby Bonilla, Barry Bonds, Brett Saberhagen, yeah. George Brett. In his time, Dennis Gilbert was bigger than Scott Boris, believe me. Oh, yeah, he, he was the man. Everybody. He had everybody. And then Dennis finally, after so many years of doing it, because he also had an insurance business that he still runs with his partner, he finally had enough of it and uh, and got out of it, sold out to his partners. And, and uh, they're still around now, some of those guys. <clears throat> They uh, they renamed it. it. Used to be called the Beverly Hills Sports Council. It's renamed now, but his uh, former young partners that he trained are now running that, and they still have good clients. But nothing like uh, what Dennis had at, at the beginning. It was unbelievable. Dennis, by the way, a little sidebar, did so well in insurance that you know one day I was, I, when I was up for the Dodger job in '98, Dennis right. was really really helping me and pushing for me, and he's been a representative, helped me as a representative as well sort of an agent through being friends really more than anything else. But uh, he said, you want to hear about my insurance? And I said, yeah, let me hear about my your insurance. I know who you have as players. So he's telling me I've got, well, at the time, Madonna. <laughs> uh, you know, he, start, he starts with her when she was really popular, obviously, 20 some odd years ago. But, I mean, he had every movie star and entertainment person and still does uh, in Hollywood. Um, he, he, has their, he does their insurance. He's got... Uh, He's got their insurance. So he, he really made his money in insurance when he got done playing baseball as a player himself. He played for the Red Sox in the minor leagues. And you might remember his nickname, Go-Go. Yeah. 
And that's because, not because he was a wheeler dealer so much, but because he could run when he was a player. He could fly. He just couldn't hit a whole lot. <laughs> so he, hang, he hangs out at Dodger Stadium a lot, doesn't he? he got, he's got box seats right behind home plate. You behind see Mary him, Hart. You see him hit. You, no, he's in the front row. Oh, front row. Okay. Mary, Mary Hart's off to his left. Okay. Mary Hart and Bird are off to his left. Dennis is right behind home plate uh, every single game. He rarely misses a game. And if he does... He gives it to one of his, you know, good clients or something. But he's he's behind home plate every game. He's a big baseball fan. His best friend in baseball is Jerry Reinsdorf. So he actually works for the Red Sox as a uh, evaluator and makes some suggestions here and there to Jerry and, and the staff there. But, yeah, Jerry, uh, he's a big baseball fan. And uh, you see him more than you do the starting catcher behind the plate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I always look. And somebody asked me that once. I said that that's what that's where Dennis Gilbert sits. And it's, it's if you're looking at your television screen, it's to the left of Mary Hart. Yeah, yeah, from the center field camera shot. Yeah, right. It's to the left. Isn't so that he's funny? right behind. He's right behind home plate. He wears. He has the glasses that at night they get. You know, um, in daytime they get dark. Right. And at night they uh, they clear up. I have the same type. I forget what they're called. Transitions. Transitions. They're that's made in the same yeah. Petersburg. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. that's, that's that's what I have as well. That's my sunglasses. So when it gets uh, really bright out, my my normal glasses. I, I wear glasses um, for distance, not for up close. Well, so I, I'm, I'm going to share this with Dennis on Facebook. So Dennis Gilbert, a shout out to you on Bobby Bonilla week. Yeah, that's that. He created all that. He had the, the great Barry Bonds contracts. Um, he actually negotiated. He had a huge house. He moved from Beverly Hills um to agora hills and okay. um he was in that area with hidden hills and he invited me to his 60th birthday party years ago and uh ask him who on facebook who his next door neighbor was i don't think it still is but it, they came over and played at his birthday party the piano oh I'm gonna um, ask. all right this this could be something you, for our next podcast you want me to tell you tell me who it was elton john stevie wonder no Right next door to him. They're good friends. Yeah, right next I, I door to him. Dennis Gilbert when I grow up. Came over for his 60th birthday, walked right next door, played the piano, sang, oh, for <laughs> gosh, for I guess a couple hours. Just, and then uh, went home. Just impromptu and just and then went home, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So special. You know, Don Drysdale, by the way, back in the 60s, he was the first Dodger that I remember when I heard about Hidden Hills. I said, where is that? Because I'm from the San Fernando Valley in you know where it's at. It's it's uh, north of Calabasas, that area a little bit. And if you go the 101 freeway up towards Santa Barbara, if you're right. going to San Francisco, it's on the uh, north side of the freeway. You get off, and it's, it's behind uh, private gates. And, you know, that's where, like, the Kardashians and all those types uh, have places. So It's highfalutin right there. It's high, it's highfalutin. But I, I believe Dennis told me that he moved. I think he moved back to Beverly Hills because that's where his insurance business is. I think... I believe he moved out of that house. In fact, I'm certain of it, and he moved back to the Beverly Hills area. But, uh, yeah, Dennis was was uh, the Scott Boris of, of today, but, I mean, even more so. He created he created what's going on today with, with the agents. Baseball I agents. smell a special podcast featuring Dennis Gilbert coming up sometime this baseball season. He also, well, I think he'd be glad to do it. He also is the one that created the Scouts Foundation Dinner because he believes that Scouts – uh, aren't are, are the most underappreciated uh, people that are in me, in baseball period, and I believe that he's right. Yeah. Oh no, that's and, a big deal. That's a big deal. It's a huge deal, and of course he invites uh, a lot of us every year, and he gets a great turnout of 
anybody you can name in baseball will be there. And then he has a variety of entertainment people as well. It's a heck of a, an event. And uh, James Denton from uh, Desperate Housewives became a friend of mine because I was doing Sirius XM on satellite. And he started calling into the show in his, in his breaks when he was doing Desperate Housewives. And he became a, a friend of Rob Bibble and I's. And, and since then, um, even when that show ended, James still keeps in touch with me. He's now moved to Minnesota. So he goes to a lot of Twins games. But J but James Denton one night invites, he says, hey, do you want to go to the foundation dinner? I said, well, yeah. But why don't you have, isn't your wife going to go? Or, he said, no, I don't have anybody to take that wants to go. And I said, I'm not asking you for that reason. He said, I just thought you'd enjoy it the most. We're, we've been good friends for a while. I said, great. So we went. And, of course, Dennis gave him a great table right up front. And right. uh, what a blast it was. It was a, that's the last on, time I actually went. He's on a Hallmark channel now. My wife yes, he is. Yeah. The, the Good Witch, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My, my, yeah, my wife he, thinks he's awesome. Shoots in Toronto. He's a great guy. She'll like him even more. He is the best guy um, uh, of and, and really, he didn't want his kids. His, his, his son, his name is uh, Kevin, and his son was born on my birthday, which we found out a few years ago because he showed up at Dodger Stadium and he came to the press box and said, hey, I want you to meet my son. It's his birthday today. I said, well, I said, James, I didn't know that. He actually, his friends call him Jamie. It's tough for me to do that because I I, I didn't grow up with him. you know. Right, but right. It's, it's real, real, real close friends call him Jamie, but um, I still call him James. <laughs> It's just like Rick Monday. I can't call him Mo. You know, All, everybody that played with him calls him Mo. I just don't feel like I've earned that right yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> Even if you work, work with him a little bit longer, then you can call him that. All right, you ready, yeah, to, get, you ready you know, to get going? Anyway, just a little bit of trivia there right there. Listen, that's so, why I like the podcast. All right, let's anyway. talk about one of the biggest stories out in the American League East, and that's the plight of David Price. There's a swing and a drive to right. This is deep. Back goes Mookie, and this one's gone. Two-run homer, Aaron Hicks, 6 nothing. Yankees. Price has given up three bombs. Listen, if I sit, stood here and I read all the tweets to you, Facebook posts, stuff from WEEI, all the sports talk station callers, we'd be here all day for people that are just grousing and not happy with David Price right now. Give me your thoughts on David Price, Boston Red Sox against the New York Yankees. It wasn't pretty. I think in today's game versus when David first came up, in those years, in 08, of course, in 09 and 10. I think in today's game, you can't just try to overpower good-hitting ball clubs because everybody loves a fastball. In fact, I tweeted that, not about that game so much. I tweeted it about the 17 runs as Dodgers scored last night. Somebody asked me, guys, that was a Dodger fan, said, man, I'm feeling sorry about the Pirates. Are they that bad? And so I tweeted this lady back, who's a really nice lady and follows me. I think she follows you as well, but she said, I said, I said, Beth, I said, it's not really about that. I mean, obviously, it's the talent that guys have, whether it be the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Astros or the Dodgers. I said, but it's a lot of guys don't know how to pitch in today's big leagues because they think they've got to overpower guys, pitch up in the zone. And, and most of these young guys that come up haven't had enough experience in the minor leagues. They don't know how to pitch up. They don't get location right. They don't know how to pitch in. And they don't have the command of their secondary stuff. So consequently, they have one pitch. They try to use the fastball. And if it's 95, it doesn't matter. The average velocity today in the big leagues is 93 versus 20 years ago when the average velocity was 87. So um, getting back to the point on David Price, here's my take. I want to ask you, Rich, because you know him from the beginning. And you, right. were with, you were with Tampa Bay a lot of years. I see a guy to me, that beats himself a lot. And I don't know what the reason is. And I know 
this guy's been a great pitcher. I mean, a great pitcher. And when he first came up, he had a 97, 98 fastball, a slider that was off the table. Why he doesn't have the slider anymore and has gone mostly to cutters and fastballs, I don't understand it. Because one year when we were working together in 2010, I remember he started throwing the curveball all of a sudden, which became a good pitch for him. But I see him trying to power that fastball in Yankee Stadium, trying to go in on these guys, missing out over the plate. They stay inside the ball like Aaron Judge did. Boom, home run to right center field. Hicks, boom, home run. Well, he had three of them that night. Um, We talked about uh, when you pitch to the Yankees. Unbelievable. Do you pitch to their strength or your strength? I think you got to go to your strength, but I think you also have to understand, you know, what their strength is and you have to have a good secondary pitch and really two of them. You have to have a, I think the biggest pitch that I would teach today, I don't think I know the biggest pitch that I would teach today, if the game's going to stay this way, a power game is a changeup. I would teach every young power pitcher a changeup. If I were in an organization today, and I had a job as a manager, and my first job was as a pitching coach, by the way. I think you know that. I've told you that before. I would teach a change-up to everybody because you have to get these guys, slow them down. you got to slow them down, speed them up. Slow them down, speed them up. you got to keep them off balance. And when you're a power pitcher and you're a power cutter, power fastball, power slider, there's not enough differential of the pitches between 95 to – if your slider is 91 and your and your fastball is 80 95 96 okay, unless so you have unless you have impeccable control it's not it's not enough differential to okay, slow let, the guys let's explain, down let's play baseball 101 differential explain to me why i need about 10 miles an hour differential between my fastball and my off speed stuff all right let's say i'm teaching or you're teaching a four seam changeup let's say you got a four seam fastball you want to have the same four seam type of grip with your changeup except you take your strongest fit uh, finger in your hand off the ball, which is your index finger. You take right. it off the ball. You circle it. If you're teaching the circle change with your thumb, you put it on the side of the ball. You put your middle finger and your weakest finger, which is your ring finger, across the seams. If you're throwing a four-seamer, let's say. If you're a two-seam fastball pitcher, then you throw it across the seams like you're throwing a sinker. Point being, you want the spin to look exactly the same to the hitter as if it's his fastball. And the arm and- motion. And the arm motion has to be the, exactly the same. You don't have to slow your arm down to slow the ball down. The grip will slow your, your arm down. You'll get less rotation, correct? You'll get less rotation, and you have the same arm speed. And so what the hitter reads, because really you have a split second, less than that. On a 95 fastball, you have 0.4 tenths of a second to react and hit a, hit a baseball. That's how good these hitters are. So if you can make them you know, react and see fastball, they're going to be way out in front of that. And that's if when you, you see them jelly-legged and you see them roll over on it, right? Exactly. Or you see them miss it. I mean, there's many guys that have strikeout change-ups. A, cha- a good change-up is either a strikeout pitch or it's a pitch you pop up usually because you get way out in front on your front foot and, and guys get underneath it and, and pop it up. They really roll over on the slow curveballs okay, more so than give, anything give else. Give me a guy who does a real good job right now that we can point to, other than Clayton Kershaw because we know he's impeccable, but that throws uh, the fastball – and then as a proper differential for the breaking stuff, for the off-speed stuff, I should well, say. Well, I mean, I think of a reliever that the Nationals have right away. Ryan Matson throws 98 miles an hour, and he's got a great changeup. And That's it looks why exactly he, the same. It looks exactly the same. And this okay. guy's had that for years. He even had a Tommy John, I believe, back when he was with the Phillies. <clears throat> and he's recovered from that, obviously. Now he's a late-inning reliever. He could close. He could pitch in the seventh or eighth. That's just, that, he came to mind right away because I've always – Loved his changeup. I'll give you a guy that maybe people are more familiar with, 
Zach Granke. Yeah. Zach Granke has a phenomenal changeup. Now, he throws a little bit harder changeup. It's not 10 miles an hour differential, but he's got such depth on that. So let's say his fastball is at 92 to 94. Still, he averages about 92.5 or so, all right? He's not, he's not hitting 95 anymore, but he can hit 94 when he needs to. But he's a pitcher, Rich. He's got a curveball. He's got a little slider. Got a great changeup. And when he won 19 games and lost three with the Dodgers and had a 1.66 ERA the year of his free agency, which, by the way, he said, I can never repeat that year again. <laughs> I mean, it was almost ridiculous. And he didn't win the Cy Young Award. Jake Arrieta had even a better year, a better second half anyway. But Zach got the long contract with Arizona, and he's been really good for them. I know people have knocked him, but if you look at his numbers, he's done, he's done what you paid him for, for the most part. But, but Zach Greinke throws a hard, hard changeup, about 88, 89. So it's only, let's say, five, six miles an hour differential, maybe a little bit less. But he's got the great arm speed, and that's just enough with him. Why? Because he has depth on his changeup. He turns the ball over a little bit. So let's say he's thrown that changeup to a Jake Lamb. Well, that's his teammate. Uh, let's let's take a Charlie Blackman, a left-handed hitter. Right. Um, and he, he throws that ball. It looks like his 92 four-seam fastball, and he throws a, a four-seam changeup, and he throws it at 87 or 88. But he's got depth. So to a hitter, it looks like it's right there, and then all of a sudden it darts down and away. It has two types of movement, down and away. Um, so he's a little bit of an exception because he has got the harder changeup. Right, but it's got um, the depth to move. It's got the depth to move, and and that's and Pedro Martinez back in his day, he threw 98 miles an hour. His off-speed pitch really was a great curveball. He threw a curveball at 76 miles an hour. And, and, and again, it's about the differential. So I don't if I have a and he, and, of and he had a, and he had a tremendous changeup too. And right, later so on, I, later if on, if I got that hammer, slide. if I got that hammer and I can really bring it, and then I can throw that changeup, I keep you off balance. But if let's say I have a great changeup. But it makes my fast. It could also make my fastball even better if I don't have that overpowering stuff. Absolutely, it does. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you look at Milwaukee when he's healthy, Zach Davies. Right. He throws a fastball about 88, 89. He's got a good overhand curveball. He's got a great changeup. So he throws his changeup in the low 80s. So he's got 10 mile an hour differential, and that's why last year in particular he's, he was so successful. I believe he's been, he's been hurt a little bit this year, but you know, in reality, when you watch him pitch. He's a pitcher. He's an artist out there. He okay, knows so that, he, can't, that, he can't throw up in the zone and get people out consistently. Okay. He's going to lose that way. So that's why I wanted to ask you, is David Price right now, is he pitching or is he throwing? He's throwing to me. That's He's a thrower. And, Rich, I want to ask you while we're talking about him, what, aside from the stuff and what he's throwing, what is going on with him mentally with his attitude and with his, his demeanor and his mound presence what's going on that's changed over the years the, you Pre know what i don't see that i don't see that glare if, if you're a red Sox fan you probably remember 2008 when david came in as uh as a reliever yeah. uh, after troy percival couldn't go in the playoffs and, hey, and we're not talking i'm not trying to knock him. it's not about no. knocking david i just know him from the days i was there in 09 and 10 he was he was really growing as a pitcher i mean yeah, he, he had, had a, he had mound presence Oh he, my he goodness! He would bear down. Now I watch him, and it looks like he loses concentration. It looks like he doesn't have that same mound presence. He gets frustrated. It, you, get, I, I, you don't see the really great pitchers show that much negative emotion. I right. mean, Kershaw will show some emotion when he makes a bad pitch, but then it's over with like that, and he comes right back and forgets about it. 
it looks to me like David's thinking about the last pitch when he's throwing the next one. And I was That's worried, just me. And I, and I was worried about David when he went to Boston because Boston is a place that will, and you know this better than anywhere else, you know, either you 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 live up to being a Boston Red Sox or sometimes it can crush you. Can crush you. We saw Adrian Gonzalez. We saw Carl Crawford. We've seen other guys go to Boston, and it yep. just wasn't for them. And I wondered with all the money that they gave David that – was he going to be able to live up that contract? Not in their eyes, but in his eyes. And it almost seems like he's put he's put so much pressure on himself. He's not having any fun. It's not he's not constant. You can't see him bear down because the the weight of that contract and the pressure of playing in Boston to me seems like he's not having any fun. Well, I think I mean I don't know if bear down. I mean that, those are your words, and that's fine. That's how you see it, and that's what I asked you. I don't know that it's he's not. It's not to me that he's not bearing down. I think he's trying, but I think he's he's overdoing it. Okay, think, that's probably a better way of putting it. I think he's trying. He's throwing 94, 95. That one gets out of the ballpark. I think he's trying to throw the next one 99. And, yeah, because and I'm going to show everybody I'm going to earn this contract. Because that's yeah. the thing. Would you go from one ball club where you had some success and you go to that other ball club? We could throw uh, Kung Fu Panda in there as well. He yeah. goes from, from San Francisco where he's beloved. David comes from he was in Detroit where he, he made a good run. He was in Tampa Bay where he's loved. Now you go to Boston. He and you can you I can name all these guys that have come over to the Boston Red Sox. Red Sox Nation doesn't care that Kung Fu Panda had all those World Series titles in San nope. Francisco. They don't care that nope. David Young won Cy Youngs. They care what are you going to do for me right now in Boston? I think it's very similar in Boston as it is in New York when you come from the outside. You're supposed to perform. You sign a big contract as a Yankee. I remember Don Mattingly told me this. He said, "I came up through the organization. So did Jeter. So did Bernie Williams." So did Andy Pettit, et cetera. He said it was much easier for guys like us because we knew what to expect. We had to, they expected it in the minor leagues from us. So when we came to the big leagues and played in Yankee Stadium, it wasn't that big a deal to us. I mean, it was. It was fun and great and exciting, but we knew. They, they, they knew the expectations. They knew the expectations, and they knew the organization they grew up in. And when you come from outside, you've got to perform immediately. And if not, you'll get run out of town because it's the, the expectations apple, are there. Yeah, and it's the same thing in Boston. I had a player named Mark Witten, a great outfielder. Great Hard arm. Mark Witten. He just couldn't handle ball. It just didn't happen for him in Boston. Later, after he was done in, in Boston and <clears throat> was gone, he ended up having, I think he played another eight or ten years and did very, very well. But that particular year when we got him to be a big part of our lineup in 95 and we won the division, it just didn't happen. And we actually had to send him down to the minor leagues for a, a period of time to get his swing down. But you'd watch him take batting practice. My goodness, he'd hit balls. And uh, we played the Yankees and BP, come out for early BP, and Jimmy Rice would work with him. The guy would be a monster. He'd hit balls out of Yankee Stadium. He was uh, from left-handed. He was that strong. Switch hitter, big right-hander, arm, maybe the best right-field arm in the American League at that time. He could run. It just didn't happen in, uh, in Boston. Carl Crawford, as you mentioned earlier, when he had his best year, uh, his free agent year, when he hit 19 home runs, stole all those bases, when the when the Ray, uh, Rays won the division in, in 2010, that was Carl's last year. I remember Carl uh, hearing a story that his son wanted him to go to Boston, but that's when the Angels, remember the Angels and the Tony Angels, Riggins yeah. was the GM then? And right. they, they had a very similar deal, but what I had heard and came from very reliable sources, I didn't ever ask Carl this specifically when he became a Dodger, but I heard his son preferred him to go to Boston for whatever reason, maybe because he'd been in the American League East and his son had been in that town. I don't know the reason. His son was very young at the time, but 
I heard that that's one of the reasons why Carl chose Boston over California. Oh, what a difference that would make. Look at Adrian yeah. Gonzalez. Adrian, Adrian no didn't doubt. fare very well in Boston. No, no doubt. And the reason is, is because the expectations were there and Adrian could produce. But he what, what Adrian, I think, had problems with was how everybody else was getting ripped. I think he was holding his own for a while, but everybody else was getting ripped and he didn't like it. And I think he had some uh, run-ins with the media, I believe. Right. Or, you know, because he spoke his, his piece. I mean, very, Adrian's well-spoken and very... Um, uh, he, he was a good leader. Let me put it that way. When right. he was in LA, you know, him obviously from San Diego days as well. Yeah. But, um, in Boston, uh, it didn't matter. The, the media didn't, didn't care. He, they, he, listen, if you didn't perform, they're they going to rip, get you. Yeah, you they're going to rip it. whoever they, they wanted. Jim Rice told me something when he was my hitting coach in those years that I was there. He said, Kevin, when I have a great game in, in Boston, I knew that it was my responsibility to take the pressure off of my teammates because Fred Lynn and I were the guys at the time that were really, you know, producing, not that the other guys weren't, they were, but he said, I might have a game where I hit two home runs and drove in four runs and maybe went three for four. And after the game, the media would come to the, you know, the younger guys in the lineup that maybe made an error or whatever. And Jim would say, go, mm. go in the trainer's room or go, go in the other room. I'll take care of the media. And he would stand there and take the heat. And Jim said, and the media would say to him, well, you hit two home runs. It wasn't your fault. He goes, yes, it was. I should have hit three. I should have hit three home runs. That, now, and that's, that's a gamer right there. That's an honest story, what he told me, too. He said, it was my job coming up to the Red Sox organization to take the pressure off my teammates because I knew some of them didn't deserve it, but also some of them wouldn't be able to handle it. And you think so. about it, during those times, Red Sox Nation was insatiable because they wanted to beat the Reds or they wanted to beat the Yankees, want to beat the Yankees. Now that they have a taste of success because they've got those world titles, the pressure is probably 20 fold. Yeah. I, I mean, I think for 86 years there, you know, the curse of the Bambino was, was set around town. You know, for me, when I came from outside um, being a Dodger and then going to Texas first, um, that really helped me because that's not the first managing job in the big leagues you want to get. Let's put it right, that way. Right. Did you, and I, okay, let me ahead. ask you this. How often would anybody bring up the curse of the Bambino to you when you were the Red Sox manager? Well, they always expected it in the second half because the Red Sox historically, you know, they might have a good first couple of months and then historically they would they would fade in the second half like they did in 1978. Right. And when Bucky Dent hit that famous home run and they had that big lead in August and the Yankees caught him. Um, and the, the fans, a lot of the fans that, you know, have been there forever would, would bring that up. Because we had a pretty good first half in 1995. We were not expected to win the division. We were picked fourth that year. We got off to a 13-5 and five start, and all of a sudden we got a six, seven-game lead. And by the All-Star break, we really didn't have a closer. But I think we had a six- or seven-game lead over the Yankees. The Yankees had a couple of rough months, which helped us. But we desperately needed a closer. We finally got one before the deadline, Rick Aguilera, which he saved 20 out of 21 and made a big difference. But then by that time, the Yankees had started playing well. So, you know, we were, I was watching the scoreboard. I was very well aware. Now, you know, during we, that time, did anybody step, hey, psst, hey, Kevin, let me explain to you the curse of the Bambino. Yes, of course. You'd Who? be out to dinner. On oh, some, really? Oh, yeah. Fans would come up to you and say, hey, you know, or if, if you're out having a beer, me and my bench coach, Tim Johnson, would go have a beer at a place, you know, where we live downtown right across from uh, our, our condo. <clears throat> we each had a separate condo there. And we go across on a Sunday after the game and have something to eat. It, it was a pizza place and ha have some beers. And some, some fans would come up to us and say, 
well, you guys are doing great and, you know, happy for you, but uh, the, the doom is coming because it's almost August and uh, the Yankees are playing well now. So, you know, get used to it, Kevin. You're going to see it. Wow. And, and, I, and I said, no, no, I don't believe that. I think we have a good enough team. I think we're going to win this division. I think we've played, I mean, we've played three and a half months of first place baseball. When you play that long, as, he, as the teams that are in first place right now are, we're past the 81 game mark for most right. teams. Right. Um, you know you're for real. It's just a matter of now. What are you going to add at the deadline? You know, that's really what it's about. How are you going to add? Do you have a weakness? And you hope that the main thing is you hope like crazy that nobody big, especially the big guys, get hurt. Get hurt. Wow, yeah. that's great. Every, every, I'm sure every franchise has their own version of that. I mean, the, yeah. the Giants have a June, a June swoon. Kirsten yep. Bambino, there's always that way that you try to explain why your team is doing so poorly. All right, I need you to explain to me right now. Why someone is playing so well, you you alluded to it a little bit earlier, the drubbing the Dodgers handed to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I want to talk about a guy who ended up tying the mark for most knocks in his career in one single game. Let's take a listen to Matt Kemp. Fly ball to left field. He is eight for eight, including a three-run home run. Matt Kemp having the time of his life. And the Dodgers lead 16 to 1. Highlight courtesy of the Dodgers Radio Network. You were right there, Kevin. Uh, yep. Kemp. Uh, what yep. do you have? Five knocks, four runs, four yep. ribbies, uh, double and a home run in that route of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Skipper, were they really chanting MVP? MVP. Yes, absolutely. And I don't disagree with the fans. That's how good he's been for the Dodgers. If they don't, if they don't have Matt Kemp this year. They're they're probably sitting in fourth place right now. Wow. Yeah, I'm telling you, he's been that good. He's been incredibly good. The year he hit what 40 home runs and stole 39 bases, uh, or maybe it was the other way around. But he tried to be 40-40. He was one short of 40-40, and he finished second in the MVP voting that year. Ryan Braun won it, and we found out a year later why, what helped him win it. Um, but Matt Kemp should have won it. He was that good, but. And I saw every game because I was doing the Dodgers pre- and post-game show on TV and back in those days before I went, went to Tampa Bay. He's a better hitter now. It's the best I've ever seen him hit. And the reason I say that is because he's not chasing sliders out of the zone like he used to. He's swinging at a lot of first pitches, but he's getting an awful lot of fastball first pitches, which actually is surprising to me. I, I don't understand... And I told Rick Monday this last night. I said, apparently the opposition is looking at a different game than we are because <laughs> he is getting first pitch fastball. He's hunting from guys. fastballs right now. They're giving it to him. Oh, my goodness. I mean, did you see the home run last night? First pitch Boom. fastball. Dead center field. Okay, now, when second, he, if, you're when he manager, gets, if you're a manager and you see someone that hot and that catcher puts down the number one and he just tattoos it, what do you say to that catcher when he comes back in? Hey, maybe my thoughts. Maybe you might think about throwing something different, or do you say something well, to the pitching coach? Well, to me, oh, yeah, I used to call pitches. Yeah, that stuff would drive me crazy. When I see a, a pattern, and I know, you know, everybody knows that Matt Kemp historically would roll over on a slider. That's why the right. shift was right? That's why Matt would have three guys on the left side on a shift. Now I you do can't do long. that. Now you can't do that to Matt because he's taking pitches down and away and dropping him into right field. If you watched last night's game, his home run was to dead center. Right. His, ba his base hit, he had a base hit to right field. He had a couple of base hits to left. He had a double down the left field line. He went line to line last night. 
That's what he's been doing all season. Is he seeing a steady diet of fastballs? Is anybody trying to move him around? Is he is are they no. throwing on that slider away? Not very much. Less than I've ever seen it. And, and I think it's because he knows the way the game is today. Guys think they can get him out up. He can hit the high fastball to me. And that's the thing. When I see when I see catchers, they put down the one and they're gonna try to go up the ladder. They're not. They're going up a step, a step stool. They're not going up the ladder where they're throwing it above their shoulders, where it looks like a beach ball and they exactly. can't lay off of it. Exactly, Rich. That's what I'm saying about pitchers. I don't think there are enough pitchers in today's game that know how to pitch up consistently or inconsistently, and are better off being pitchers like Zach Davies. Like I said, you know, changing speeds. I mean, the only way you beat a good hitting teams is to be able to change speeds. I don't care who you are. Look at Justin Verlander when he was. Great last year. Look at how hard his how good his slider was and his curveball. Right. It wasn't his fastball. I mean, his fastball was great. Fastball. You could set everything up with that. You set everything up with that because he could throw his curve and his slider for strikes. I, I talked to Justin about. It. I mean, I I've heard him say it last year. He went back to his slider a lot, and even more so than the curveball. And it was a devastating pitch for him. I mean, that's the difference with Kershaw. The reason Kershaw, and he's pitching tonight, hasn't been dominant yet is because he hasn't had the feel of that slider yet. He's been hurt a lot this year, twice on the DL. He's got the curveball, but he doesn't throw it maybe 10% of the time. So what do you look for as a hitter? You're hunting fastballs. But when he gets that slider going, now he becomes you know, the Hall of Fame pitcher that he's probably going to be. But if he doesn't, it becomes a flat pitch. It's not a put-away pitch yet. I think it will be. And I think you may see some of that tonight against the Pirates. But that's that was the difference of Clayton Kershaw when he developed that. Now he's got a little changeup to go with it. He throws a backdoor cutter and everything. But he's still mainly a fastball, overhand curve, devastating slider. So you've got to have the secondary pitch. And what I saw last night from the kids that pitched, two, two, two young guys pitched, Kingham came in. I know his numbers were okay. His ERA was 3.78, I believe. And he's got, an, he's got a good changeup. I mean, I saw it against lefties, but I didn't see any against righties. I just saw him try to spot his fastball, and, and he got killed. And then uh, Tanner Anderson came in, his first major league appearance, and Clint Hurdle had to leave him in there because in a three-game series, you want to blow up your bullpen in the second inning. So all of a sudden, it became he gave up a ton of runs, and the you kid just got, got to take one for the team. And the kid just got knocked, knocked. He just got knocked around. He might have been pitching well in AAA, but even the Pirate announcers. We're talking about it. They say AAA is so much different than the big leagues, and if you don't get that secondary pitch over, that breaking ball, that changeup, you're in trouble, especially against the Dodgers. And that's really what happened last night. And then the lefty that came in later, if you looked at his numbers, his numbers were decent, but he's also got a lot of walks, and he's the one that uh, gave up a bomb um, to Matt Kemp. So um, it's just, you know, it's – I think the Dodgers had four home runs again last night. But if you watch the Dodgers, most of those home runs are off of uh, fastballs at mislocation. And it's not taking anything away from the hitters because you still have to hit the ball. Right. You still have to see it well. Max Muncy, he's hitting baseballs up where Willie Stargell used to hit them. I mean, he's hitting balls 400 and halfway up the right field pavilion, which you I've never seen. You know you're making seen. Oakland A's fans cringe when you say that, right? He's got 18 home runs. Yeah, I know. I That's it's crazy. Just, it's unbelievable. But if you make a mistake middle in on Max Muncy, he's hitting every one of those for extra base hits. Usually it's out of the ballpark. But the other thing that's helped him is he's got a good eye at the plate. He's, he's taking a lot of walks. So he's not being fooled. But 
if you throw a good changeup, and I've seen it a couple times, you can get him out front and get him off balance a little bit. But if you're always looking hard and you don't do that to hitters, and I'm just using the Dodgers as an example, but every good hitting team's that way. If you don't have that secondary stuff and keep them off balance, you're, you're going to get beat. Even Pedro Martinez, as dominant as he was throwing 98 miles an hour, he knew he had to have the off-speed stuff. He had a curveball and he had a changeup, a devastating changeup that was about 14 miles an hour less than his 98 fastball. So he had a, a changeup in the mid-80s, Rich. He had a fastball 97-98, and he had a curveball in the mid-70s. So he had three types of differential, which is how this conversation started. He had an off-speed pitch that broke the curve at 20 miles less than his fastball. He had a straight pitch with some fade that was 14, 15 miles an hour less than his fastball. And then, of course, he had 98. So if you're a hitter, you can't look for the changeup. You can't look for the curve. you got to look hard because that's what he's going to throw, you know, 50, 60% of the time. But if he gets ahead of you, look out. Look out. You're in trouble. I mean, you're at bat is over with. And so that's why you see guys in today's game ambush. First pitch fastball. That's what Matt Kemp's doing. And and, and, he, and to his credit, he's hitting every one of them. And he's hitting every one of them hard. Okay, we've been talking about mistakes, Kevin. You actually, mm-hmm. I think we're right there for one of the biggest mistakes, bloopers that kind of had a deja vu, deja vu moment in baseball this week. Uh, Tim Tebow trying to catch a ball off of a big wall <laughs> and left field. Let's take a listen. 3-1 pitch. Akami swings. It's a high fly to left. Tebow backing up, spinning against the wall. It's off the monster, and then it hit Tebow and rolled all the way into foul territory. Witty coming home to score. Akami heading for third, and he gets there standing up with an RBI triple. And the Binghamton lead is now 2-1. to one. Highlight courtesy of MLB.com and Cut4. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. The original one was oh, Jose yeah. Canseco, right? Oh, of course I remember that. Tell um, me that, Dave. And we've seen that highlight where Jose is going back to the ball, bounces off his head, lands for a home run. You know why I remember that date, Rich? And I'll always remember that date, the exact day that it happened. Because it's that was my birthday, May 26th. This is the second May- baseball reference we have on a uh, birthday reference for you today. Yeah, yeah. James yeah. Denton's uh, kid and uh, Jose. Yeah, absolutely true. 19, 1993, my first year managing, we're in uh, Cleveland, the old stadium, which held 90,000 people, except in uh, those days. Um, Cleveland was just starting to become a pretty good ball club, good talent. But in the old ballpark, before it became Jacobs Field downtown, the new ballpark, the old ballpark by the lake, uh, a lot of people wouldn't go out. You know, it's, it was an ugly place. It was um, clubhouses were the smallest in baseball. It was just not a real pretty venue. But um, in in right field, um, a ball was hit to deep right field. I think it was his name was Jose Martinez, if I'm not mistaken, a right-handed hitter at that time for Cleveland. Another Jose Martinez, different one, obviously. And the ball was hit, you know, long and hard. And Jose was, you know, running back for it. I remember he didn't get to the wall first. He was kind of he was reaching he, for it, reaching for it. He didn't get all the way back and 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 then look up. He was reaching for it, looking back, you know, kind of teeter tottering. You know, those happy feet, as some people will call it. He had those feet where he wasn't sure where he was. And then as he reached up for it, the ball bounced off the top of his head, went up and went out of the ballpark for a home run. And I remember two things specifically. I remember Kenny Rogers was pitching. He knew exactly what had happened, that the ball went off his head. And he was, as he should be, madder than a hornet. I mean, he was really. Kenny uh, Kenny got emotional. 
He was really upset. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kenny was really upset. And then I remember David Hulse, who was our center fielder that year, who had a pretty good year for us. He was a re- rookie, left-handed hitting rookie. Went over to Jose and he was smiling, kind of laughing. It was hard for him to not to laugh. He was trying to cover it with his glove a little bit, but he was laughing. So I said, there's a – I looked at Jackie Moore, my bench coach. I said, there's a, emotions of two different people. One guy saw it so up close he couldn't believe it and started laughing. The other guy – was the pitcher, and he wanted to, he wanted to bury Jose. I mean, he was really upset as he as he should be. He's a catchable ball. So when he came in from the uh, inning was over, he came in and Jose, you know, everybody said that ball went off your head. And he said, No, it didn't. No, it didn't. I said, Jose, and so I called up, called him. I said, Jose, did that ball go off your head or not? He said, No, no, it didn't. Went off my glove or whatever. I said, You want to look at the replay? Because I always stood up near the camera well whenever I managed. Right. So I had in between innings, I had the, them roll it back for Jose in a break. And I said, you want to watch it? And, and he did. And it went off his head. And that's that's what I remember <laughs> from that day. And I also remember that was my birthday, May 26. So that that ball is um, always played around this time of year. And I've, I, I knew at that point in time in 1993 of, of that particular date, <laughs> my birthday, that that would go down in infamy, that that would, ball would be seen over and over, maybe it's going to be in the highlights, you know, long after we're all gone. Did he ever talk about it afterwards? Not really. You know, we didn't we didn't really bring it up after that. I mean, that that was something I'd never seen before, and I hoped I'd never seen it see it again. But uh, in baseball, just when you think you uh, have seen everything, and you go, "God, I won't see that play again." That was the strangest play twenty some odd years ago, twenty five years ago. Sure enough, it happened again to somebody else. Tim Tebow, and you know he got got corkscrewed over there, and and he's playing. I, I think they were playing up in Maine, and that's a big wall like they have at Fenway yeah. Park. Um, yeah. That's not the easiest place in the world to play in that in left field at Fenway Park. Oh no, no, off Fenway, the Green Monster. I mean, Fenway it, is a very tough left field. You've got, and that's the other thing about Carl Crawford. Getting back to him for a minute, although he played there nine times a year playing the Red Sox as a visitor with Tampa Bay. Still, it was a difficult place for any left fielder to play unless you play 81 games there. So for Tim Tebow, what did he do to put himself in that position? Was it, was it turning around and, and he just got lost? Or did he get too close to the wall? Um, Rich, I didn't see the play. I didn't break it down like I wanted to. you know. Because um, it glanced off the top wall. Because I've talked to people that have played at Fenway, and they say that you know there's a, there's a little bit of a no-man's land that if you're up against the wall because it's so high – It'll bounce back. It'll carry him. And if you're standing there on the warning track, there's times where the ball will bounce away from you, and then you're going to end up chasing it all over the place. Well, here's here's what happens. Uh, and Jim Rice told me this when when they played together. Jim Rice and Fred Lynn played center. There was a point in the wall about halfway between left field foul line and and center field okay. where Jim would say there were so many dents in the wall that and they're still there that. They knew if they hit us beyond a certain point of the wall, that it would hit maybe to the right. Like take the wall from left field foul line to center field, and, and let's split it in half. Imaginary splitting it in half, okay? Right. Jimmy, Jimmy, and Fred would know if it hit on a certain point um, beyond that halfway point. Jim knew it would hit and kick back um, to his behind him, and so Fred Lynn would would cover him and and take the ball because it would carry it would it would carry him back toward the left field foul line right and they were both verging for a ball in left center but if the ball hit a little bit to the left of that spot i'm talking about 
instead of coming right back to you, the ball would hit and carry him off towards center field. And so Jim would continue running and take the ball in center field and cover Fred Lynn that way. And they only knew that from playing there together, you know, all those years and, and working out there so much. Um, but that's, that was, that's a true story on how, on how it was back in, uh, in those days. And it was true in my day too. And I believe it's still true. And, and I know that, um, every new left fielder that, that takes over, you know, was Ted Williams and then Jim Rice and then Mike Greenwell and so on. I mean, you really have to go and work on that in, in your off time. Like, like nobody else, like nowhere else, like no other ballpark, because it's, um, it's really a unique, I mean, it's what, 38 feet high, the monster, and you don't need two relay men on balls hit to left field because it's so short. And Roger Clemens walked it off from the uh, one day many years ago, he told me, and he said it's not, I think it says 303-something down the line, left field line. Right. 305, I can't remember. He said it's actually 10 feet shorter than that. It's 290-something, 295. Wow. So it's not, it's not very far, yeah. And so... That's how Jimmy told me that he had to play the left field wall. They knew, they knew where the uh, the indentation part of the wall was, and how it would carry him if a ball was hit at a certain point of the wall. That's how that's how good they became playing that wall. But if you haven't been out there very much, and you get too close to the wall, it skims the top of the wall, and you think you can catch it, and it'll skim the top of the wall because there's still a lot of dents in it. You know what right. I mean? So it's it's not a straight flat wall. It's really interesting. When you talk about Fenway, you know, you have to go see it to believe it. And I believe it's still that way. I don't think they put a brand new one out there. No, no. All right, I got but, two things to finish yeah. off our podcast today. You ready? Okay, yeah. You know, it's the anniversary. I think it's the 40th anniversary this month of the San Diego Chicken, a former, I believe, classmate of yours, right? Yeah, Ted Giolunas. Yeah. At uh, San Diego State. Yep. 40 years Same ago. Year. 40 Same years year. ago, he uh, was hatched as a San Diego Chicken. And I was telling people... You know what? He really is a guy who culturally changed baseball, but because b- before the chicken, um, you didn't have mascots running around. You wouldn't have the Philly Fanatic or, or any of the rest of these. Uh, he started them on the field. Now, of course, they've been forced off the field, but he really is a guy, if you look at the annals of baseball, he's the guy that started the entertainment that we have at the ballpark more so than anybody else. And you know how that started? I'll tell you, if you don't know. No, tell me. Well, originally there's a station in San Diego, uh, KGB. Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's still there or not. You would know because you're yeah, living still there. Still here. KGB. Well, he was a KGB chicken at the time, and it had a, a generic uniform with KGB on it, promoting the radio station. That's really what it was about. He, he wasn't allowed to do any antics or tricks or anything, and he got tired of that. And he told me this personally because he used to come around to the minor leagues as well, and um, he said that how he got into it. And he knew I went to San Diego state. We graduated the same year, et cetera. And we, we knew each other and been friends a long time. I haven't talked to him in a long time, but point being, he told me the story of how it became the San Diego chicken. He said, I decided um, that I would design, I had to design a different chicken suit because they, they knew I was going to leave the station because I wanted to do some antics and, right. and have some fun with the fans at, at you know, radio station, um, uh, remote places that they would do a show at. He wanted to do, have some fun with the, with the audience, and they wouldn't let him do it. They wanted him to be very sterile and just, no, you just uh, wear KGB just and walk right. around and say hello to the kids, and that's all. Well, he had a lot of, you know, humor involved in, in his act, and he wanted to, he had things that he wanted to express and make an act out of. They, didn't, they wouldn't let him do it. Bottom line is, he said, okay, I'm going to leave the station. I'm going to use a chicken suit. They said, no, you can't. 
he said, well, I'm going to design my own then, which he did. And uh, he was he, he did it and he got it uh, patented and, and everything. And um, the rest is history. And he started doing acts locally and in San Diego, especially Padre games. Because remember in those days in the 70s, the Padres were not very good. Right. They had become an expansion team in 1969. And I remember their shortstop was a guy num- named number 11, Enzo Hernandez. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> number, number 11, Enzo Hernandez. That's how they would announce him. Never forget, Freddie Kendall was catching. I remember that. Jason's a father. And Johnny Grubb was, I think, uh, there in those years. And this was before Tony Gwynn, of course. And the Padres weren't weren't all that great. Let's just put it that way. So it, he was a, became the San Diego chicken um, where – he could perform and, and hopefully draw some people in, which he did. And then eventually he did the act that he did with the opposing team. And, you know, the rest of the story. And he not only did it was allowed eventually to go to big league stadiums around the country. Right. After he did it for the Padres for a while, that he also came to the minor leagues. So he had his one man act. And he's still doing it. One man act. Is he really? Yeah, he's he still doing out there doing it. So between wow. dot races, remember the dot races at the Oakland Coliseum? Sure. Yep. Charlie Finley started dot races, the San Diego chicken. By the way, here's my best chicken story. You ready? Yeah. Uh, umpire told me this. Ralph Houck hated the chicken. Hated yeah. the chicken. Yeah. If the chicken stuck his head over the lip of the dugout, Houck could <laughs> try to hit him in the face with a bat. He hated the chicken. Oh, man. So one day Houck's in there, and he's in a and he's in a dust-up with the umpire, nose-to-nose, yelling, screaming. Well, unbeknownst to Ralph, the chicken standing behind him, pecking his head the same way that Houck is. And they're going and going and going. And Hauk uh, looks over and he notices the chicken. And the chicken, you know, has his hands at his hip and he's pretending to argue, being the third person in the argument. Hauk right. looks over the umpire and goes, you know what? I'd rather have this chicken umpire the game than you are. You do a better job. That's it. You're oh, out of here. Oh, oh, God. That's funny. No, that's, uh, that's, that's great, Rich. That's I mean, great. That's... Okay. Now, the I last love, one. You know what I love? You What's know what that? I love? One of the acts he did. Well, one of the acts he did, he would go and make fun of the bullpen near the end of the, of the, of the show. I mean, he would do it for, over a course of several innings, like Max right. Pack, Pack and Oh, the Clown Prince of the, Baseball. The, the Clown Prince of Baseball, who was in that movie. What was the movie? The Old baseball Durham. movie? Old Durham. Um, and young people that don't know what I'm talking about, they can Google Max Packton and see. <laughs> he, was a, he was the first one that really, that I know of, that actually did minor league events and, and big league events, et cetera. Same type of thing, just diff- different uh, different act. Right. But they would do it throughout the course of the whole ball game. And so at the very end with the San Diego chicken, he would, uh, you know, make fun of the bullpen and go down there and do the that thing with his hands that he used to do and put the, the whammo on him, like, right. you know, the curse. Well, he would do that. And then eventually the bullpen, all the bullpen guys were in on the act, of course, because we talked about it before the game would go and just jump on him and bury him and act like oh. we were yeah and it was it was pretty funny that was funny and then when he developed the act where he had um the the chicklets the little the little baby chickens yeah, 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 that yeah. Follow. and at the end of the he had little girl had to be about four years old and they'd walk by the visiting team you know and they'd all put their their, their wings their leg up and at the very end at the very only her yeah at the very end she'd lift her leg up like she was a dog Oh my God! It was it was really fun. You, know, you could uh, Google him. You know Riggs. You know my son Rigney. Yeah, he's gonna yeah. hate this now that he's he's almost eighteen, Kevin. Yeah, no, um, it's hard to he, believe. He was the first original Mini Raymond. So they did was that he? where they had oh. remember they had the little Raymonds. This is in Tampa yeah. Bay. Raymond was yeah. that big blue sea dog they had, yep. and and they wanted to try to have kids be Mini Raymond to follow around like the like the chicklets. And they yeah. said, well, we need somebody who's 
we could send out there and it should be an employee's kid just in case something happens. So I said, oh, I'll let Riggs do it. So Riggs put on the suit and he went out there and was, I think it was a game against the Yankees and people were throwing stuff at him and they were throwing beer at them because they were throwing it at the mascot. And he goes, dad, that was the coolest thing in the world. Somebody threw beer at me. Oh, that's great. That's, so, that's funny. Right, yeah, so I, re last... I remember that. Let me tell you one more yes. quick one. Yes, please. Why this is a small world. Years later, I'm managing in Great Falls after being a player and seeing him and all that. Right. And he came into the clubhouse and talked to me in the manager's office. That's where he had to get dressed. And we started talking about business. He said, yeah, Kevin, man, I'm having a tough time. I said, why? I'm making a lot of money. He goes, yeah, I need an accountant. And I said, well, I'm an accountant. I mean, I didn't know how long I would stay as a coach. I just right. did it my first year and told you I was doing taxes. And, and we came, and I'm holding my fingers together, that close for me being his accountant and working for him. But oh, not working hilarious. for him, but but – Working him, helping him financially. That would have been one of my biggest clients at that time. But I, as it turned out, I decided I wanted to stay into coaching because I loved it and loved the players, and it worked out. You know, worked out yeah, for both of us. It worked out for both of you. All right. Yeah. Last anyway. thing I want to ask you. You're. I'm sorry, folks. I know this is a baseball podcast, but Kevin is a big basketball fan, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just. Time. I wanted to let you talk about how excited you are that LeBron's coming to LA. Well. You know, it's I'm excited about it, but I had stopped watching Laker games, to be honest with you, after Kobe was done. I mean, I I grew up in the era of Jerry West and Elgin Baylor, you know, right. and, uh, and then when they got Wilt Chamberlain, that was that was tremendous. When Kareem came after seeing him as a Lou Al's Lou Alcindor at UCLA, then he became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. When they got Kareem from Milwaukee, that was the biggest signing. And then, of course, later with uh, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Big game, 19, James 1979 worthy, worthy. yeah all those guys um that team that Pat Riley had I mean that was uh you know showtime I don't know that you can ever repeat that to be honest with you Kobe Bryant beat with Shaq became as close as you could it wasn't exactly a showtime team but it was unbelievable talent but now to have LeBron after having all these rookies and the number one pick close to it the last couple of years the number two pick you know in the lottery they still, they've still been an under 500 team. They've got Luke Walton coaching. I think the dynamics are going to be interesting to see, you know, how LeBron, of course, is going to take over and who stay. I mean, Lonzo Ball is there, and you know about the Ball family and the father. Right. I, I don't know what the dynamics going to be yet. So it's going to be interesting. I, I'm not, I'm not, to be honest with you, I respect the game and I respect those guys so much in the past that. I'm I'm not I'm not as overly as you might think I would be about about basketball these days to be honest with you in LA. Mm. So I, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to watch them. I mean, listen, it's a great time to be a sports fan. But in it'll LA. be a good time. But I will watch them again because oh, I yeah. haven't been. So yeah. they'll they'll get their fans back. That's for sure. But but LeBron has done some things the way he's done it and said a few things that I don't I don't yeah I don't care for and uh, you know he hasn't been. He hasn't been on my radar. Let's just put it that way. No, it, but it'll it'll be interesting in LA with with the way Kemp's playing right now and Kershaw, and the Dodgers, yeah, and you got the yeah. Lakers coming back and the Rams, and it's a fun time to be a sports fan. In no, LA, it I is. Think. Yeah, I think well, the Rams coming back was huge too. Yeah, no, I no doubt. But the Dodgers, um, and if they win again this year, the division, I mean, right. they have to they have to go to the World Series for the fans and win it. I mean, that's it's really what it's about now because. Fans now, it's almost like the Yankees we just talked about earlier in the yeah. show in Boston. They expect the Dodgers to win the division now. It's more about going all the way, like it used to be with the Yankees. Absolutely. So we'll see. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast. Happy Fourth of July, everybody. We'll be back later this Absolutely. week with another edition of our podcast. So that is the skipper, Kevin Kennedy. I am Rich Herrera. Don't forget, you can find Kevin Kennedy, Kevin Kennedy, MLB.
on Twitter. I'm RBI Rich. Check out our homepage on Facebook, facebook.com slash America's Best Baseball Podcast. Again, for those you've been with us for a while on our other podcasts we've done, make sure you tell your friends we're back with our podcast. Now it's called America's Best Baseball Podcast. Thanks for joining us for America's Best Baseball Podcast. Our podcast was produced by Braden Suppernant. Find us on Facebook at America's Best Baseball Podcast. You can find Kevin at Kevin Kennedy MLB on Twitter, and you can find Rich on Twitter at RBI Rich. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.